Hey there, welcome back to the program. This is Jonathan Edwards with PureAndSimpleBible.com. So thankful that you're with us once again. And we're continuing in a great conversation with Brother Austin Maddox. We're talking about the Word becoming flesh. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, this is a major theme in that Gospel. And Austin has spent some time last week kind of laying out the groundwork. But now we're going to get into some really important theological implications as well as some great applications for you and I to take away from this. So I really encourage anyone who hasn't had the opportunity to listen to part one to pause right now, go back and listen to that one first. And once we're all caught up, then we can jump back into the conversation. Let's get started, shall we? I think a natural segue into the next part of this conversation um, is is to kind of lay out for people who go, yeah, you're right. Um, I believe that too. Well, let's continue spelling out for people what they believe if, in fact, they agree with what you've just said. And and for those who are listening who maybe have a little bit of a different view and maybe they're thinking, I don't know if I believe that, what would be the, you know, where would people go if they were to follow this line of teaching? What I'm getting at is what are the theological implications for this belief that Jesus is incarnate? What do we what do we come to conclude? And maybe not all of them, as far as uh, we don't have time, hours and hours on end to talk about our theological implications, but you've kind of cataloged some pretty important beliefs, and I'd want to give you the chance to express that to our listeners. Sure. So so like you said, we we don't have, you know, all the time in the world, but if if it is true that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is God with us, as as the name Emmanuel means then obviously that has to have some major implications on who we are, what we do, and and what we believe. So the first, and maybe this is not the, you could debate, you know, as far as importance, but sure. um, the first that I'm going to throw out there is that flesh can't be inherently evil if Christ is God incarnate. And And I'll just interject real quick for our listeners' sake, uh, that if if flesh is evil, you'd have to come up with a whole lot of different theories and doctrines as to how Jesus got here, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the virgin birth, um, we've got to somehow make Mary immaculate so right. that Jesus can be born um, and not be born a sinner. So yeah, there's there's billions of people that would struggle with this belief about flesh not inherently being evil. I just want to interject that, but but keep going. Explain maybe why this is is a really important issue. So, um, it, I, I think there's several several takeaways that you could you could come up with. Uh, on this, some that primarily we don't really discuss anymore or haven't been discussed for uh, for several hundred years, like doctrines of Gnosticism, Gnosticism or Doceticism. Uh-huh. Um, What's that? I know I'm familiar with Gnosticism, which is like a higher knowledge, you know, people who had right. a higher knowledge. How would you define Doceticism? Uh, the best. Docetism. I don't even know how to pronounce it. 
You know, come to think of it, I'm not sure <laughs> I do either. <laughs> I think it's docetism, but. Okay. So docetism would be that Christ's humanity was just kind of an illusion, that it wasn't, he wasn't actually here. And to use kind of a, a modern example, it was just kind of a 3D holographic image that he was just walking around and suffering and 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 all that. It, he wasn't an actual human being. So that's what right. that um that belief is. And and that was argued over for, for several hundred years um after the death of Christ. So um not not really so much anymore, but where it kind of comes into more modern beliefs is is when it comes to inherited sin or total depravity or the fact that um, even babies are born in sin. So right. um, if this is if it is true that Jesus came in the flesh and came as a as a human child, then uh, just like what you were saying, you, you have to come up with some pretty some pretty extreme doctrines to try to get around inherited sin. And the easier answer is just to say flesh isn't inherently evil. And I think that the scriptures bear that out when you look at passages that talk about what sin really is, that it's the consequence of decisions that we have made on our own to rebel against God. And and of course, Jesus did none of those. So, Okay. Um, so we've yeah. got uh, one big theological implication to believe in, in the incarnation is that we have to concede that flesh isn't evil. Well, what are some others? What what else do we find whenever we come to believe that doctrine? Sure. So, yeah, you have to, it, it's proof that Jesus came and he fulfilled the prophecy and promises of God. If we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, then all of the prophecies of the Old Testament came true. And depending on who you ask, that's about three to 400 things, um, specific promises promises concerning the Messiah. You could look at promises that God made through Abraham or or even all the way back to uh to Eve that the seed of the woman would would uh crush the head of the serpent. Um to Abraham, to Judah, to David, um, so forth, many promises are fulfilled. So so that's that's another big implication. Yeah. Uh, so you also have the fact that God literally inhabited a human body, meaning that he was able to bleed and die and be tempted and suffer and ultimately relate to us as, as human beings. Yeah, I like the scriptures that you you have for that study and the, and the ones in, in Hebrews for mm-hmm. listeners who are interested to to read these Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 and then Hebrews 4, 15. I love that thought that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. That's huge because uh, we don't serve a God who um, is is unable to appreciate what it's like to be in the flesh. Rather, um, as, as the Godhead uh, dwells in perfect unity, part of that perfect unity is now an appreciation and understanding of what it means to be in the flesh, right? That's absolutely right. And that should give us such great comfort that every time we pray, um, that God, that 
Christ as our intercessor, as um, as it's described. He knows exactly what it is to be human. And that's why Hebrews 4.16, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Um, that, that should be such a, such a relief to us and should really increase our faith all the more, just knowing that God became human, that he was fully God, but also fully man at the same time. Knows exactly what it means to, to feel and to be you and I. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, I like this one that you, you add as well that submission, uh, the idea that Jesus submitted to the Father whenever he became flesh. This is important for uh, continued relationships that are based on submission. Uh, You mentioned 1 Corinthians 11 as well as Philippians 2, but tell us for just a moment about uh, why the doctrine of, of the incarnation helps validate and show a positive view of submission. Right. So, um, I have a strong desire to preach like a whole sermon right now in First Corinthians eleven, <laughs> um, but it's it's really beautiful when when you think about it, because just what Philippians two talks about that it was not something for Christ Christ to grasp at. He was equal with God. He was in the form of God. It wasn't robbery to be such, but because. God had a plan because God had a scheme of redemption and because Christ knew exactly what that required. It had nothing to do with value because they were uh Christ was God. He was it wasn't robbery to be equal with God. It had nothing to do with value. Uh it had nothing to do with a lack of respect or anything of that nature, but it was voluntary submission that Christ chose to come down to the world to take on the form of humanity and and to give his life as a ransom and and there's no greater expression of love than than that because he didn't have to there was no uh there was nothing really to be gained from it from his perspective because he is God but yet he chose to submit and to take upon himself the form of humanity and come down to earth just for us. And, and that boggles my mind even to this day to think about it. Well, there's, there's definitely a lot. I mean, you, you said a whole sermon and I'd you know, <laughs> follow you up with my own sermon about submission. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a subject that's sorely misunderstood and not mm-hmm. just from people who are in the world who um, look at the, the church and look at, doctrine and say, oh, this backwards group of folks that <laughs> that uh, think submission is, you know, a ticket to a man's uh, patriarchy. But I would also suggest that even in the church, uh, there's a, several different incorrect ways to look at submission, including the ones who use that concept as a means to justify cruelty and uh and or abuse, any sort of domestic abuse under the, 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 yes, the yes. guise of, of submission. Uh, when you look at Jesus and the Father and how there's this perfect harmony and submission in their relationship, uh, it really is a special thing for us to to take note of. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to ask you just to uh, briefly mention the last one before we go into practical applications, but you have one final theological issue here based on the incarnate 
doctrine about Jesus, and that is that his blood cleanses us from sin. Why is that uh, on this list? You know, that seems to be the thing that everybody would agree on, and yet you you are asserting that if he didn't come as the incarnate word, then the cross would have no effect. What do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting when you think about the incarnation, because if if Jesus is just a guy, if he's just a regular human being, you know, saying that with all due respect, then lots of humans die every day. So, right. so what's so special about that death? Well, you can't really make a claim that there is any anymore. If he's just a prophet, any more than you could the death of John the Baptist, you know, did John the Baptist sin, uh, blood wash away sins? No, couldn't have. And nobody's even making that claim or the claim of, you know, any other prophet um, that died. Um, now, if he's God and not man, then God can't die. That's one of the the, uh, the defining characteristics of, of what it means to be in the form of God, which, which explains why God would have to inhabit the the form of a bond servant, why he would have to come down and, and, and take upon human flesh is so that this sacrifice could actually mean something. Right. Right. Okay. Well, it's one thing to have a conversation about the, the various theological implications of a doctrine, mm-hmm. but it's another thing for us to be able to maybe take it away and use it. And so, as we commonly do uh, in the third act of a sermon or in the third act of a, this conversation, it's time to find ways to apply it. Yeah. And so we want people to listen to this. We want them to go and read the Bible and study it and, and chew on the doctrine themselves. But if we're not living it out, if we're not being salt and light with this, this doctrine of the incarnation, then we're... we're kind of burying a treasury, right? We're burying a talent. So mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to just give you the floor and speak for a bit about practical applications. How, how am I supposed to use this in everyday living? Yeah. So I think with, with some of these topics, you know, maybe we get into the rut of, well, this is just purely academic, you know, how much practical application could there really be from something like this? And this is where there was a passage that uh, we were actually studying um, here at my local congregation on Wednesday night, and a passage that I had known and had actually memorized and you know used in a lot of different contexts, but it really took on new meaning when I w- looked at it through this lens of the incarnation, and that's First Peter chapter three, verse fifteen. And there it says, "But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts." And it's interesting, there's a note, there is actually a, uh, a textual variant that is reflected in newer translations like the, the New American Standard. Okay. And rather than sanctify the Lord God, it comes through and is translated, and I think correctly, as sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Okay. And then from that, it says, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So this idea of sanctification or sanctifying the 
Sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts means to set apart and to make him holy and to where to use you know another phrase to where he's sitting on the throne of our hearts he's ruling over us he is our lord and i i hadn't appreciated that out of this verse maybe ever before right because a lot of times my mind just jumps to well i want to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks anything about me and and any any position that I have or any belief that I have, uh, I just have to be ready to give that defense. But where it actually begins is if Christ is sanctified as Lord in our hearts. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what does that mean practically? When, right. When you think about what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord, it's not just because he is Lord because he already is, but he has to be Lord to you. He has to be your Lord. And there is a personal relationship that has to take place there. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship anyone else has with Christ. If you don't have that relationship with Christ, if you don't have Christ as Lord in your heart. So you can look at, you know, your grandma or your parents or your siblings or your preacher or whoever. And they may be nice enough people, and but that doesn't matter what their relationship is. If you don't have that relationship with Christ um, yourself, right? unless he is Lord over you and your heart, it, it ultimately doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then from that, and, and this is where it really hit home with me, if Jesus is truly God, the Word incarnate, then it's not good enough to just accept him as savior. Right. But you, ha- but you have to accept him as Lord. Yeah. I've, I've liked, I love that concept. I've heard it before, but it's always challenging to hear it again. Um, if somebody hasn't heard it, right. And mm-hmm. somebody says, Jesus is my Lord and savior. The, there is an implication there and you're about to talk about it. So what is this implication of if I accepted him as my savior, but not my Lord, what am I missing? Right. So the Savior part of who Jesus is, I think, is a really easy part to accept, right? Because what Jesus offers as our Savior is he offers us remission of sins. He offers us eternal life uh, through obedience to the gospel and and all of these things. And all of these things are just given to us, not because of anything necessarily that that we have done to deserve them, but just because... um, because of his sacrifice and and through his grace and his mercy and by our faith and ultimately obedience to the gospel. So that part is really easy to accept, but what about when it when we talk about him as Lord? And and, and again, kind of going back to that subject of submission, uh, we don't we don't really like to think about what it yeah. means to to submit to someone as Lord, right, or as ruler or as the I don't know if you want to call it maybe the moral arbiter of our hearts and the one who decides everything for us. That's that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Christ as Lord. So it's easy to accept him as Savior because he's just given us things and it's love and and it's grace and all of these magnificent things. And, and all of that is true. That's right. But, that, but that's not it. 
Right. You can't just accept him as Savior. You have to accept him as Lord. You have to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm thinking about practically what that means to uh, accept him as Lord. It's more than me just getting on my knees and saying, I submit to you. Mm-hmm. And going back to your scripture that you mentioned in, in 1 Peter 3.15, you and I have had this conversation. I remember, I think we had it uh, driving in the car. Um, but I, I appreciate that, like you, I think for a long time, I've used 1 Peter 3.15, where you know it says, always be ready to give a defense, which is apologia. That's where we get apolo- you know, the apology mm-hmm. um, side of, of theology from. And that doesn't mean to say I'm sorry. It just means to give a defense, <laughs> you know, like an educated defense. Right. And yet 1 Peter 3.15 is beginning with, if you want to uh, be able to give a defense, you have to sanctify it. Christ as Lord in your heart. And so my question is, just practically speaking, if it's more than just me bowing down or getting on my knee and saying, yes, you are Lord, how do I practically live a lifestyle of lordship where Jesus is Lord in my life? Yeah. So, you know, people may not want to hear this, and this is really tough to understand, and I think this is the most challenging part about it, is when we think about Jesus as being our Lord, maybe we we don't realize, but that means that we have to change to whatever it is that Jesus wants me to be. And that requires repentance. That's a huge theme in the scriptures. And and that's an idea that, you know, we may kind of step back on, whoa, uh, Jesus wants me to change? Or maybe Jesus, he doesn't just want me to keep on doing everything that I'm doing right now. Um, right. Uh, you know, we might say, well, that's not my Jesus. <laughs> the Jesus that I like is he is the Savior. He is the one that just gives me everything, and I just go about my life however I want. Right. Um, but to, to sanctify Christ as Lord means that whatever he says goes. Right. And and we we can say that all we want, but if we're not actively doing that and showing that in the way that we live, where we are conforming to what we find in in the scriptures for that he has asked us to do, whether it's you know on the topic of love or on the topic of forgiveness, maybe Christian character or um you know, e- even down to what constitutes the church and what constitutes um, living righteously, these types of things. If we aren't willing to say, okay, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to line up and do that. Yeah. Then Christ isn't our Lord. Amen. That's a hard truth, but um, it it's hard to be. And in fact, maybe even impossible to say that I'm a Christian and then say that I, I don't actually do everything that Christ wants me. He's not actually my Lord. That, that's contrary. It's an oxymoron to what it means to be a Christian. Well, you're making me think of, of Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7. Many say, mm. Lord, Lord, but they do not do, right? Depart that's from right. me. Um, I never knew you. And and then in James as well, it's not the hearers of the word, but the doers. That's right of the word. So, 
Well, uh, as we start to wrap this up, you you have a final verse. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 that I think really encapsulates what um, you've just mentioned about Jesus as Lord and kind of our response. I'm curious if if you would read it and, you know, maybe offer us just a word of encouragement and then also share a final thought if there's anything we've missed. Absolutely. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And if that doesn't encapture what it means to be a Christian, I don't know what does. Right. Because he died for us, we live for him because he is our Lord. And we fall in line with whatever it is that he says. And, and again, in, in the topic of submission, it comes right back to it. This is not an abusive relationship, but as, as is talked about, um, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Um, and his commandments are not grievous as, uh, First John chapter five talks about, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's it's worth it to be a Christian and to have Christ as Lord over our hearts. So, um, if if there's ever a final message, that would be that would be that that it's worth it to have Jesus as Lord over your heart, um, and that He is worthy of that spot because He is in fact. God incarnate, that he is the word that became flesh. Amen. You know, who, who would have thought that the the concept of the word becoming flesh would have such profound theological and personal, you know, day-to-day uh, implications, but it, it does seem to make a big, big deal. And going back to the very beginning, um, you know, you mentioned so many different people who believe or call themselves a Christian, but they don't believe this. And yet mm-hmm. knowing what this means, um, you know, there's just a sense of urgency that we want to share it with others so they can know and uh, make better, better choices about their, their theological views. Well, brother, thank you for coming on. I'm grateful for the conversation and I'm grateful to have spent the time with you. Well, thank you for the opportunity and, and God bless you in your work. Well, that's another conversation in the books. Again, I'm so thankful for Brother Austin and grateful for this study. It was really healthy whenever I heard it, preached as a sermon. It was very enjoyable to have it as a conversation. And so I hope that you, listener, were edified by the conversation we had. I hope it encourages you to go and consider Jesus as the word that became flesh and all of the implications, both doctrinally and theologically, but also the way that it applies to our lives and how we can find it useful as we want to be useful servants in the kingdom just in our day-to-day lives. So if you want to continue on a journey of religious and spiritual conversations, then I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast, to go to www.pureandsimplebible.com and check out all the resources that are there for you to utilize and download absolutely free. And until next week, Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.